Hi, I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in this episode, we'll be talking about growing up with a parent in prison. Today's episode explores the parental cycle and the impact of having a parent in prison. We are super excited to welcome author Jason Wilson. He has a degree in psychology and is a mental health worker. He's with us to discuss the book he's published this year called The Old Man and Me. The book documents his dad, Tony Spencer's life of crime as Tony was one of the most wanted criminals in the UK. Welcome. Hi to you both. Nice to have you here. Um, we're going to get straight to it. Um, CREST, so C-R-E-S-T, which is the advisory, um, which is an independent consultancy which specialises in um, criminal justice and policing. That's a big, that big straight sentence off. We're straight, going straight off. Into that. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm more interested in a statistic that they um, they shared, which is that two out of three prisoners' sons go on to offend themselves. Um, and so that statistic really stood out to us. And... I'm keen to understand from your perspective, with that in mind, two out of three prisoners' sons going on to offend themselves, do you think it was always going to be that you would follow in your dad's footsteps or do you think it was inherited? Where where do you think that came from? I think in some respects I would always be following in his footsteps. He went to prison when I was 10 for an armed robbery and I felt a certain pressure to kind of do what he couldn't do or he might have wanted to do if he was here. And initially, that was to go into business like he had. Sure. Um, to make a lot of money. Uh, and his his impetus in life, he was always about making lots of money in an unrealistic amount of time. And the way he did that was crime. Mm. And so as I got older, you realise through legal channels, it's difficult to make a lot of money. And you do look at crime and think, well, that is a way forward. And I can understand why he went that way. But you kind of inherit a certain pressure to live up to certain expectations as well. Uh, and that would be... Something that drew me that way. Um, he would be released when I was older. Yeah. Uh, and he was again back into crime. He was a drug importer at the time. Mm. And it, it kind of was, was very easy for me to, to follow in his footsteps into that area and to become and work for him and get to know him. Uh, and that's part of what's in the book, how I get to know him by being involved in crime. So that was the kind of like under, underpinning part was getting to know him and, and that therefore led into following his footsteps because of that desire to want to have that relationship with him. Yeah, so I entered the criminal environment and got to know how it all worked and these were people I'd heard of when I was a youngster and these types of people, all, all villains in business but also in crime. Uh, and so I got, well, as I got older I answered this curiosity by going into this world and kind of uh, meeting importers and smugglers and dealers and understanding how it worked and seeing it in business terms, which is how he saw it. Yeah, um, he saw himself always saw himself as a businessman, except his business was crime. Uh, when I was in my mid twenties, his uh, business was drugs. It was a uh, hashish and amphetamine. Earlier on, it had been counterfeiting American dollars. Mm. Did bank robberies when he was younger, but that clearly wasn't really a business. But the drugs that was a business, sure. and all the drug importers and the dealers, they all saw themselves as business people. And they operated along business lines. Um, you had credit and you had workers and you had wages and it was all business terminology. Uh, so it was easy to go into that world and see it as kind of a, a form of bootlegging. Okay. And that's how I saw it. Mm, okay, so so it's interesting 
that route that you took um we did a poll actually um and as part of these podcasts we um every time we um have a guest we have a special poll um and the poll this time was um asking if you um think that uh, your upbringing determines your future and um the 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 responses were split actually um so some were some people were saying yes some people were saying no and some people were saying don't know so it was the jury's out really whether um it's something that's predetermined um but obviously your dad was a really big influence on you and uh, you know you you've said that that you've really you you followed him into that life to find out more about him um but interestingly, you didn't know about that when you were younger. So he went to, to prison and you weren't aware that he was in prison. You thought he was at college. That's right. Tell us about that. Uh, when I was seven, he, he went away to college. We moved house, went to live with my auntie, me, my brother and my sister. We lived in the attic for a couple of years. And during that time, he was at college, which was Lay Hill Prison. And we used to visit there last Sunday of every month. And it was an open prison by that point. So there was no bars, but there were guards who I understood to be lecturers because they didn't wear their caps most of the time. It was quite informal. And we used to go see my dad, and it was a, a great day out. And it was during that time I kind of saw what sort of charisma he had and how ambitious he was and idealistic. And he t- had these big talk of massive businesses he was going to build and the amount of money he was going to make. And this environment of going to prison at that age was quite, it was like the highlight of the month, really. It was mm. something my, me, my brother and my sister all enjoyed. Because when you go on a prison visit, I don't think people grasp. You sit down with your father... And he's not busy doing stuff. You get his 100% attention. Mm. And you sit and you talk for a couple of hours. And that's kind of that intimacy and that connection. And it's a great environment for that. Um, whereas when he was out before that, he was always on the move. He was always busy. He was always working. But in prison was where I really got to know him. And got to know what sort of person yeah. he was. But it was a prison setting. I was just unaware because I was seven. Yeah. Do you think, just talking about that prison setting in a second, sorry. Do you think, um, because you weren't aware... Um, nowadays that you wouldn't be afforded that privilege would you because there's social media you know um i I think your friends presumably didn't know you no one ever spoke to you and said your dad's in prison like you know that That, that would be later when i was seven you're not at an age where children were aware of the news and the media see that's different now isn't it because i think everybody knows everything really quickly it's more likely yeah with social media it's more shareable Mm. um in my case, when I was 10 and 11, when I went, he went to prison, that was more well-known. You couldn't really hide that. And it was a Cat A prison. You couldn't really hide that experience from you. Right. Uh, and more friends and family knew about it. You couldn't really shield it. And it had been in the papers more. Because if it's a low-profile crime, it's not likely to be in the papers. So you will try and repress it and mm. keep it yourself. And a child going to school will be told, look, your dad's working away. Just tell people that. And that'll be fine. Mm. Uh, I went to a focus group recently and there was a dozen of us, and we all had our re- the stories we were told as children. Your dad's working away, whether he's on an oil rig or he's working on the roads, he's on contract work. But everyone had their reasons. Mine was college. Um, but every ch- child had a, an excuse. It was only the only exception was one where their parent was named in the m- local media and they had the same surname and they couldn't really escape it. Mm. And they had to move house and change names and that sort of thing. I find it really uh, fascinating that you talk about that kind of intimacy of of relationship building, like through the prison visit. So, um, I have first hand experience. So I've I've been to prison to visit a loved one, and I actually find it like one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. Um, but I think actually, when you then spoke about the intimacy of that 
conversation mm. actually the person I was visiting I don't think I've ever had more meaningful conversations with so actually just that when you've just said that that's just really like switched something on in my mind because actually the experience of going in and being in that environment and you obviously then went to the kind of cat a prison where it was a lot more strict um that that bit for me was very distressing but actually talking to you then about that kind of that two-way conversation and having all of your dad's time so that then actually became something quite special really yeah that's something i've i've always re- remembered how how his eyes were so alive and how when he talked about the future it's all about coming home like be back in the summer and i was kind of aching for the summer to come to see when he come home mm. uh, but that's what he, it was all about the future and one thing in prison they always you talk about the future because the past is history you've made a mistake and you don't really want to dwell on your mistakes mm. so with your children it's always talking about the future and it's a big future and I think it's one of the motivators when you're inside, especially for my dad was, to have a big future to look forward to, to be motivated. Um, so you just didn't think, I'm not going to slope into something minor, I'm going to do something big. And I suppose it gave me that sense of ambition, that expectation that in life you're supposed to do something big and meaningful. It's like an existen- existential quality he had. He'd always had to be ambitious, he couldn't do anything small. Mm. And I think that's something that was passed on to me. So later when he did go to prison again, I felt an expectation that I had to do something meaningful because he couldn't mm. and there was kind of that it's kind of inherited just passed on it's not when I was in my early 20s or late teens at my first jobs I always felt they weren't important you didn't earn enough money they weren't ambitious enough because that's the expectation I had you really got to do something you've got to get out there and do something big which is what he always had mm. so that's really interesting because going back to the topic in terms of what you know um is is criminal behaviour inherited or is it, you know, is it genetic? So you're saying that it's that it's that meaningful piece for you? So you both had that same Yeah, it was meaningful. like culturally transmitted in a way. Right. Whatever work you did, it had to have scale and it had to have ambition and it had to be visible as well. Okay. Cause so, that, so that makes sense then um, because a lot of people talk about it in terms of social or biological um, things that mould people. So you would say that socially, that you're, um, I don't put words in your mouth, but from a, from a social yeah. perspective, therefore, it's that, it's, it's that needing to, to prove to him that, you're, that your life is meaningful, you can do something meaningful, and that's yeah. what was important to you. Yeah, that's, that's, like I said, it was kind of transmitted uh, through culture, through films and conversations. I mean, for instance, when we were kids and he used to have films on, it was always with anti-heroes, guys who were up against a system, who had great ambitions, and it was instilled in you that that's what you did in life. You kind of you were an individual, and what you did mattered, and that's the way you were. I suppose you were kind of conditioned to think, mm. and that's the way I thought as a as a teenager and into being a young man was go out there and do something big and meaningful. Mm. And it's something I've still got a little bit. Uh, I mean, with a book, that's one thing is to do a book with a, gr- a sense of scale that doesn't compromise. And that's what I did. it even affected like 30 years later how I wrote because I had, to th- I had to write it and think, when people read this, is it going to mean anything? Am I getting the scale of it across? Am I getting inside and really mm. getting across the idealism, which is what he gave to me when I was younger. So with that, what was it that you wanted people, you know, I, I appreciate you wanting to kind of tell your dad's story and share that. And I know towards the end of the book, you talk about, you know, you wanted to know who he was and why he was the way he was but what 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 did you want to to kind of convey or for readers to take away then um there was that personal the personal thing was to tell his story Mm. 
But the, the, other, the other thing that came with it was to show what it was like being raised and working and uh, visiting him all those years in prison and what that experience was like because I'd never read anything about that. Um, when I picked up a crime book, that sort of thing was invisible. Yeah. Um, and that was the, that condition the publisher I went with. There was five publishers wanting the book and the mirror was the one that said, would keep it all in. And I took that to mean, we'll keep all those chapters about the prison visits in. Yeah. Because that's the bit that meant a lot to me. And I thought it it would, by putting it out there, it means there'd be other kids with parents in prison. Eventually they would read it and they'd like a social document of that. Because like I said, I pick up crime books. It's just erased. It's all about the drama and the crime, but it doesn't really connect it to the family situation and how it affects the people around the prisoner. And that's what I wanted to show in the book as well. And that's the, the thing that comes up, the takeaway from the book, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's interesting that one of the, uh, in one of the chapters, you talk about how your family fell apart when you were in prison. Mm. Uh, when, sorry, when your dad was in prison. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting as well. And you were saying that your family was cold and sometimes emotions were dismissed or, or yeah. mocked. Um, and that must have been really hard with your, with your dad, who you obviously, you know, idolised and, you know, you wanted to emulate in some way. But you were being shut down, and your family was falling apart. How did you how did you cope with that? Um, at the time, it was I look back, and it's kind of a survival mechanism. How does the family go on? Uh, I was eleven when he goes to prison for this. It's for an armed robbery, he gets ten years, and and initially, there's a sense of togetherness. The family has this secret, and we're going to work together, and we're going to get through this. But quite soon, it starts to crumble and fall apart. Um, so you kind of one thing you do is kind of repress emotions. You can't really have drama. Uh, you want things calm and stable, which means you have to deny a great deal. And there's also this thing about having a secret where you, are you going to tell friends at school? Are they going to know anyway? Mm. And me, my brother and sister at the time all went to different schools. At my school, it was a new school. No one knew. And I had a choice. Do I tell them? My father's surname was different to mine. Um, so I had a choice. At my brother's school... They all knew who his father was. They knew he was a business owner. So when he got done for this bank robbery, his friends knew, but also his teachers knew. Mm. And over the months, you started to see there was a certain prejudice and expectation on him. And a lot of that was off the teachers. All of a sudden, if there was a group of people yeah. misbehaving, it would be Dean who'd be called out because... He had to be the naughty one. He had to be the naughty one. He was being pushed into that role. He wasn't one of a group anymore. He was memorable. And he had that association uh, with a bank robber. Um, so his education started to go down and it was one of the things that meant I didn't confide in anybody. I didn't confide in best friends or I just thought I'm going to keep this to myself and hopefully people accept who I am. But it was also part of who I am. So it was kind of holding that back and just giving what I had to to get through. So I saw it as like a survival mechanism almost. And did, did all of your siblings come together and talk about these things? You know, do you feel the same as your siblings? No, so, I mean, central to it was we, we understood what had happened. But we didn't talk about it. Uh, no one got emotional about it, which was hard on our smaller sister because how could she make sense of it when we're all not talking about something that's so important? But it was a way of getting through it, really. And for, until I wrote the book, we never really as a family sat down and talked about it. Uh, for my mum, it was a lot of stress. Um, and I think that was one of her ways of coping. You, again, you don't look back. You have to look forward. You look forward to what good there might be on the horizon. Um, but she never looked back. And the same with my brother. We were all kind of together, but alienated, I suppose. Um, and for my brother, it was, it was more difficult initially because he was older and all his friends knew at school. Whereas for me, it became a, a lot of denial and repression. And it, 
become very alienated as we went into the sentence where essentially you've got a, a load of thoughts in your head and you just have to keep them to yourself. And that's what it was for quite a few years. And did that impact um, on you or your choice um, sort of looking into psychology? And It would later. The kind of the seeds of it, I, I suppose, were there because it was trying to understand why my dad was the way he was, uh, but also to understand people, which I suppose it created a bit of a distance between me and other people and the way they are. And um, a certain awa- awareness of prejudice, I suppose. Um, and that's something I didn't like as I got older. Um, so that certainly influenced psychology. And when I studied psychology, there were certain things that came up and I would relate to that experience and the later experiences. So, yeah, that was a, a real drive to study psychology later. And how, you know, you, you talked about the kids that kind of get left behind and it's talked about, again, you know, by Crest that children of prisoners remain very invisible there's very there's a, there's definitely a lack of yeah. support there, isn't there? How has this um, shaped how you like parent your um, children? I mean, initially, my daughter, I wanted her to have a relationship with my father because he was in prison in Spain at the time. Yeah, and I didn't want the prejudice. I wanted her to be open-minded and liberal, if you like. Um, so it affected how I brought her up. I didn't want her to be any sort of shame. Uh, when she was about 10, I brought out some graphic novels. Yeah. And they were with my father. And they were in the local papers. And people knew my father was in prison and her grandfather was in prison. And I didn't sense the prejudice there was when I was younger, which I thought was a good thing. Whether she made much sense of it, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, with this book, it's a bit different because now it tells this whole story. And it's, uh, she, has to, she can read it and make up her own mind. Yeah. Um, so it's affected me a little bit as a parent. If anything, I've probably been too protective and... Um, some of the hardships we had when we were younger she hasn't experienced so it does uh, I suppose you overcompensate as a parent depending on what you experienced yeah I the bit of the book that really stood out because clearly your dad's like a huge been a huge influence on your life yeah. and um, was the bit where um, he said to Kia it's Kia your daughter That's right. um, said learn everything you can whatever you can whatever you learn can't be taken away um, and you said you hope she remembers those precious words that just really stood out to me. Yeah, that was the one of the wisest things he would ever <laughs> say. Uh, it reminded me, it's like when he goes to prison, he would later say that no matter what you've done, they can't take that away from you. There's certain things when you're in prison, they can only imprison your physical self. But what you think and what you've done and the knowledge you have, they can't touch that whatsoever. And I, I kind of related it to this book. So say, hypothetically, I had problems with this book. I think I've wrote the book. They can't take that away from me. Sure. And they can't take the fact I've put certain things in that I should thought should be there. And I think that's one of the things about doing a book. It's And with this book especially, it went out as I wrote it. Uh, and those chapters about me visiting prison, they're always there now. Yeah. So there's a certain satisfaction in what he said, except this is more, I suppose it's out there socially this time. It's not a private thing. Let's talk about, um, move it away from your specific experience maybe and talk about um, children in general who have a parent in custody. So... Uh, and I know you've been doing some some work with the Express, which it'd be good to hear about, um, because we we were doing some research for this, and um, it, it was sort of astonishing that there's no support mechanism for children at such a traumatic period of their life if, if their parent going to prison, and there's the state seems to have sort of no role at the moment, and that or, or limited role that at a traumatic point there is no there is no support for that child. There's there's not really anything changed in 30, 40 years from what I can make really? out. When we, when we were younger, the fear was social services would come in 
and it kind of essentially attacked the family. And we didn't want that. So we didn't want social services near us. But at the same time, after a while, it's a case you do want help, but you want it, you want it on your terms. Mm. But there wasn't any help. Um, one time I tried to tell one of my teachers and she really didn't know what to do or say. And nothing came of that. And that's the one time I reached out oh. to mm. It sounds school. isolating, really isolating. Yeah, I think I just, I didn't mean to tell anyone, tell the teacher. I just blurted it out one day. Um, I think I was lingering after reception when you first go into school, everyone's left. And I didn't realise I was going to say it, but then she come close and I just said it. Oh. And she didn't know what to say. And nothing came of it. And that was the only, I suppose in my mind, a slip up because mm. up to then I kept it to myself. And after that, I continued keeping it to myself. And that's what it was. It was feeling like you were invisible, that you didn't, you didn't really count or, and there was nothing there. Because it would have been nice to have something out there, someone to talk to or maybe help. But like I said, from my mum's point of view, she was fearful we might be taken into care because um, she was a mother with three children and loads of debts she'd been left in and the housing was poor. Um, so there was fear of social workers, but at the same time we did need more help and there was nothing. And that, I understand that's still the case today. So tell us a little bit about the Break the Cycle campaign that you did with the Express. Um, the... the the campaign was really about improve, improving that situation. Um, for me, one important aspect of that was removing the stigma and the prejudice that, that kind of comes with that. Like I said, my brother experienced and I feared. Um, and it was the hope we could r- raise the, the profile of this. But, and that's been difficult because you want people who are notable to come forward and to become visible. And in the first few months, of, I meet with a focus group uh, and we had the second meeting this week. And we found within two months we couldn't find any celebrity would come forward and actually become visible. Really? And that was quite astonishing. Wow. Um, a few have noted they have had a parent in prison, but it's just been noted in. You've, you really have to dig to find that out. But to get people to be visible and to come forward and say, look, there's no stigma on this. You know, my parent went to prison. It doesn't define who I am or anything. That was, that's been proved really difficult. And that was quite surprising. So I'm still kind of rocked a little bit by that. Yeah. And it makes it very difficult to do a campaign when there's people who won't come forward. Because it's a campaign about getting rid of prejudice and stigma. But if people as adults still feel that prejudice mm. and stigma, they won't become visible, then it undermines the whole campaign. Mm. So it's a real challenging thing we're trying to do with that. Um, Michael Knowles has uh, pushed forward on this, but he's hit quite a few brick walls, especially in politicians as well, who don't see it as a priority. Um I mean, as I said, there doesn't seem to be a lot of empathy for children if parents have gone to prison. And the same with the partners, almost as if they've chosen it or there's some sort mm. of dis- aspect of deservingness in, in some respect, as if when you meet a partner, you know they're going to go into prison in years to come. It goes back to that, uh, you know, is which is the core of, I suppose, what we're talking about. Is it inherited? Is it, is it you know, if you've got a parent in prison, then you're going to go to prison yourself anyway, so therefore let's not even have that as a topic let's let's look at something else and i think that's where the stigma starts to it starts at this very start doesn't it yeah there's there is that i mean when i was growing up there was a certain fear that i might go to prison not for something i've done just being unlucky or yeah you just had mm. a it just seemed looking back it was quite a natural fear and an ambition i had as a teenager was hoping when i was an adult i didn't go to prison and that shouldn't really be an ambition no. for any child so yeah so, so it's been frustrating this campaign uh, we're still pushing on it, yeah. but it is getting the visibility to get celebrities to come forward. I think the only one that's ever really been visible has been Ronnie O'Sullivan in the past. Yeah, but it he, is. But, he, but he's been alone in that. He's not had support off other celebrities. No, I think I think you're right. There's just so much stigma attached to it. So, you know, I know 
you know, certainly until I joined and went into my current role. So in the yeah. last, you know, last couple of years, I definitely kept that knowledge or part of my family separated from my day to day because I felt like people would judge you a certain way. You know, people look at you differently. They, you, you feel, you can feel it and you can see it. And you're then, you're then measured by a family member's yeah exactly uh, you know whatever they've done and I think you can then understand and see especially I mean we're going to go on to a different topic especially the way cancel cultures operating and the way people do like hold it against people then actually it becomes hard for those people to stand up and go actually I support this but you know I've watched you know young children that have been impacted by prisons and things and actually what we need to do is like you say break that stigma and and create that conversation because there's a lot of people so affected mm. And that's our future generation, potentially. I mean, the, really, yeah. it, it's a lack of discourse. It's not there's a bad one, there just isn't one. Yeah. And it's trying to get that going, but you need voices. But when the voices won't speak up, yeah, um, that that's that's the re- the real problem with it. And I think we can certainly do that, but we do need we need to raise the awareness and get people speaking out so it's normalised. You know, some, your, your parent goes to prison or an uncle, what's that got to do with you, really? You just happen to be related. Um, it should just be normalised and... Um, like I said, the connotations just melted away, really, with um, the fire of words, I yeah. suppose. So, um, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, so one of the things that, that we say here is that inclusion is an action. And um, we ask all of our guests for a, a top tip um, or so a key takeaway. So we wondered what you uh, had, had any thoughts about that. Um, I suppose my thinking is... Um, it's really about socially being yourself. Uh, when I was growing up, and I wish I had someone to say, is you can have a lot of prejudiced people, but are, they are a minority, they're a loud minority, and really you have to be indifferent to them because they, they exist at every age you're at. Most people are okay, and they'll accept you as you are, but the prejudiced people, you really can't allow them to um, intimidate you or force you into being silent, or um, really you just have to learn, they're part of life, these people. Um, but the more loud, the louder and more visible you are, the le- the quieter they go, and I think that's something like with this campaign and uh, this subject matter. That's what has to be done, really. I think that's a, that that's a great key takeaway. Um, don't, you know, don't let the bullies get you down. Don't don't. Yeah, be, that's it. But yeah. also, don't allow them to intimidate you into being silent either, yeah. because that's when they've done that, they kind of think they're winning, as if what you know what they see is right and the truths they hold are true, and they're not. They're just their voices of this. Uh, prejudiced minority thank you so much for your time um and the book the old man and me is available now good luck with that thank you very much thank you for coming great conversation well another another interesting episode with jason wilson um yeah, I feel really I, I mixed, emotional, not sure. Yeah, you were quite emotional through that. I think it's because it like resonates a lot and it's just a really, in, I, I, it's just a really weird topic. Weird isn't the right word, but um, I think we kind of covered it towards the end. It's the the stigma around the families, like I, you know, I'm a f- I am a member of a family of a person that was in prison. So 
it just hits home quite hard I think yeah I think I think it was interesting that he unfortunately opened up a little bit more after we we stopped recording I think he was intimidated by you Dr Julie I think it it was more the headphones (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we had a great chat during the recording as well and I think you're you're absolutely right when he was talking about the stigma and the fact that with the campaign that he's doing with the Express that breaks the cycle, that they can't get anybody to front it um, that's in the public eye and that there should be a discourse around this subject and there just isn't. Yeah. Um, and we talk about prejudice and bias a lot um, but this is rarely spoken about, I think. I agree. I he spoke afterwards, didn't he, about, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan spoken quite candidly about prison, but to have no other celebrities come forward to mm. get involved. And I think, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, I think for me, it's just around that stigma, isn't it? Yeah. Putting your name to something like that. But actually, that's what we need. We need those people to step out and talk about it, whether it be a family member or, or even themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and thinking back to the, when we first started talking to to Jason about um, whether he was always going to end up in crime because mm. of his dad. I thought that was an interesting uh, take around that meaningful work that his dad wanted something to be meaningful in his life. And, um, and that's what Jason is now carrying on, that he needs to have meaning in his life as well. So maybe that's not the... You know, we talk. We were thinking about the genetic link that there's, you know, crimes in someone's blood, but actually, that's in their blood. That that meaningfulness. Yeah, and that cultural piece of the pressure to impress, but in a different way. You know, one family might see, you know, going to university and getting this dream job as as the measure of success, but actually, he's talking about making lots of money so that you can have a good life and doing that by any means necessary and so actually if you've been around that and exposed to that that's just going to keep passing on isn't it indeed so i hope that um that they do get a celebrity or somebody to front that campaign because it'd be good to um support that me too and i think my final final thought is again right at the beginning if you were listening carefully um he also mentioned curiosity he did (laughs) so that that theme (laughs) runs through this podcast so yeah another another one for the book indeed you can find us on twitter our handles are in the show notes below and if you've liked what you've heard please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically thanks for listening